You are now tuned into anything potable. The most honorable, the most audible. Hold the applause, like Paul Pierce when he was fresh out the hospital. Like Antoine when he shimmied after shots went through. Welcome to Anything is Potable! The Boston Celtics Podcast here on the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm your host, Sam Jam Packard, professional sports fan, and I'm joined as always by El Nino, the kid, the god, the legend, Celtics beat reporter from the Athletic, Jay King. Ladies and gentlemen, we're coming to you live on a Tuesday afternoon. We've taken some time to process what was the Celtics' failure in Game 1. I'm sorry, Giannis. It was a failure in which they had pretty much the best statistical offensive half I've ever seen the Celtics play and still managed to lose a basketball game. They shot 76% or 73% in the first half and were only up by three. It's because their defense was just, oh, oh, so bad. Uh, I have not had a chance to go back and watch the game because uh, I have other stuff going on. But Jay, he's a professional journalist. This is his job. He is a brilliant basketball mind. I didn't feel good saying that and giving you that much credit. Why didn't initially. you feel good saying that? I don't know if you're a brilliant basketball mind. I would say you are a basketball mind. I'm an you impeccable ball, basketball but I mind. I, I wouldn't ascribe to you mind. brilliance. I'm an innovative genius. Well, let's let's put that genius on display because you went back and watched the tape of Game One today, and you need to share with us what you learned, what happened in Game One. What do you know today about Game One that you didn't know when we podcasted immediately after the game last night? Nothing too different from my initial really, thoughts in on basketball the basketball mind. You learned everything you needed to learn when yeah, watching because it live. I can I can watch it live and just compute it at a level that very few can actually. I'm very bad at that, and I always am super impressed by NBA coaches who have to, like, just break down the game while it's live and know what happens with all 10 players at all times. To do all that is really, really tough because it always takes me another watching on tape to realize what the fuck happened. But in this in this specific game... It was pretty simple. James Harden was awesome, and the Celtics just didn't do enough to take away his comfort. They they never ramped up the intensity. They never took away his rhythm. They let him get to his spots, didn't send enough help. They are the worst team in the playoffs so far at forcing turnovers, which is so bad compared to what they were last season when they basically just like brain fucked Kevin Durant <laughs> in the first round. You are a brilliant basketball mind. I'm sorry. See? I take it back. See, <laughs> they brain fucked Kevin Durant in the first round last year, and now they can't force turnovers on anyone. Not... And Trey young, Trey young's really good offensively. Super, super talented. James Harden, one of the, most actual genius basketball minds, his ability to compute the game, to go after switches, to get the defense to do what he wants them to do is is second to very few. Um, but the Celtics just haven't been able to to steal people's rhythm. 
And that's been, I mean, the last five games, they have the worst, they have a worse defensive rating over the last five games in these playoffs than the San Antonio Spurs, who had the worst defense in the league, had during the regular season. That's and not that's great. That's so bad. Um, just so bad. But I, I thought it was interesting today. Joe Mazzulla said some things that I think kind of share a little bit about his philosophy of the game and the way he views this specific team probably kind of helps make sense of some of his lineup decisions. And and he said, like, obviously the Celtics shot 59%. Their offense did not let them down as much as their defense did. But he, he basically said, like, our strength is offensive management. And that's what we're best at. And we failed in that regard. He thought they had too many turnovers. He thought after they scored so many points in the paint early, they just thought it would be easy to score points in the paint the rest of the way and kind of force things, I assume, at the rim. Um, some of their turnovers definitely were just like dribbling head down into traffic for minimal reason. And he just didn't think they thought the game well enough offensively. So to, to me, that was enlightening um, just because we've seen him go away from the two big lineups. They only played it two minutes in game one. We've seen him play smaller with more skill on the court. We saw down the stretch last night, he played Malcolm Brogdon and Marcus Smart together instead of going with a bigger option. Um, and he he seems like he's basically decided offense is this team's gift. Offense is what makes this team go. And that said, they need to be much fucking better defensively. They cannot be like that. <laughs> it can't so, be that bad. That offensive kind of philosophy from Missoula I think explains one of my biggest questions and it's something I think I saw in the game yesterday. It's like why, when you're giving up this much just defensively, why not go to the too big lineup, which is clearly uh, you would think just a better defensive lineup. And if, if I, it clearly has an impact on what they can do offensively. We saw Philly uh, kind of junk up the game with a lot of, a lot of zone, which I think with the two big lineup, it's very hard for them to get better, like good shots um, when the both bigs are in there. When we saw that happened, I was like, all right, immediately we got to go to Sam Hauser and create some spacing here. Um, my biggest question is that, okay, you're going to play small. Say you're going to play one big. One, the first question is for like the first half. Why are you playing drop defense in the pick and roll. It feels like the the Celtics pick and roll coverages against Trey, against Harden, and sometimes against Maxi have been especially bad. And so why are you at all ever playing, I guess, this just drop coverage to allow James Harden and Maxi to step into threes? And then why is the only other alternative to that like a full-out switch where you get, it's usually going to be Al Horford, um, but other times we see it be Sam Hauser. Uh, we saw Grant Williams get attacked when he was playing in the game. Why is that the kind of the only other option? When I might not be a brilliant basketball mind, but I'm aware of other pick-and-roll coverages you can play. You could trap. You could maybe even hedge. Like, it seems like there's just no emphasis on trying to get the ball out of J or James Harden's hands. And it feels like if you hedge a little bit and let the 
pick and roll defender like kind of get back to him and force him to make a pass like force b-ball paul or uh pj tucker or the guy setting the screen to make a play and the celtics have just been like feels like they're operating in this weird binary world where it's like we're either switching or we're in a drop and there's just no in between yeah and they did throw a couple doubles and the doubles were just super shitty they were shitty doubles, one. but they weren't even they weren't in the pick and roll. Like they put two on the ball, just like oh, the shot clock's hit eight. Let's run a random guy at the at James Harden. And then the one that really stood out to me was like Malcolm Brogdon left George Niang, and Jalen Brown stayed down low, and like just didn't get out to Niang. He didn't split the difference between the guy who was down low and, and across. There was minimal like. Like, you can't just allow one pass away to be a wide-open three if you're going to double. That can't be the case. I thought the Celtics – I didn't think it was necessarily scheme. Um, everybody always loves to point to the drop. <laughs> and I think it's because people know, oh, that's drop coverage. It's also because um, it's a passive form of defense. And you're like, oh, but they should do something more. Do something more. Don't just let him get into the paint. And so it's the most frustrating uh, coverage to watch. Yeah, and I understand that. I do think there were times. There was one, uh, like, step back Harden jumper on the right wing in the third quarter when he'd already had 23 points. And Al Horford was in, like, I think it started off as a drop and then it became a switch. But he just didn't do any. Like, he just literally let Harden take the easiest practice shot two-point jumper. And I get that the Celtics want to live with the opponent shooting mid-range jumpers, and they wanted to take away Harden's foul shots, which they did a really good job of, and they wanted to take away uh, his ability to create for others, which they didn't really do a great job of, but, but I understand why they tried. You just have to do a better job of first funneling the guy there, but then taking him out of what the fuck he wants to do. Just make him think. Make him think a little. James Harden was, he was getting exactly what he wanted. He knew how they were playing him. They didn't make him think. They didn't even try to brain fuck him. <laughs> and, and, and you laugh, but it's like, that's the difference between the Celtics defense right now and the Celtics defense last year. Last year, Everyone had to think, like, where where is the help coming from? When is the double coming? Are they? Am I going to turn my back and they're just going to just be draped all over me all of a sudden? And now, Trey Young was able to get to what he wanted, and he was able to hunt what he wanted. James Harden was able to just take his time, find the matchup he wanted, get to the coverage he wanted, and then just pick them apart. And they didn't stop him from doing that. And that, that to me, was the most unforgivable part of the Celtics' defensive effort is like, yes, yes, the Sixers shot 21 for 43 from mid-range. Yes, if the Celtics force that many mid-range jumpers the rest of the this, this series, their defense will probably be a lot better than it was in game one. But it's Harden is, get, is going. He's in a flow. 
you've got to take him out of getting to exactly what he wants. And they never managed that. I I didn't think like this Sixers team. Sure, they they play smallish without Joel Embiid. They have some guys who can beat you, Harris, Maxi, whatever. There are guys you can help off of. B-ball Paul, you can help off of. PJ Tucker, you can absolutely help off of. I don't even think he took a shot in game one. B-ball and Paul? No, he had one nice roll into the rim. He got fouled. No, PJ Tucker. Oh, no, he PJ Tucker did not. <laughs> PJ Tucker did not take a single shot. And that maybe to me is... Him, maybe, maybe force him to take a shot. Maybe th- that's an adjustment. That's a failure. Like, <laughs> you, you allowed them to keep PJ Tucker in the game the whole time without shooting, and you never sent enough help off of P.J. Tucker that he even took one shot. While James Harden is going, while Melton is going, while Maxi wasn't super efficient but produced a lot of points. Like, maybe maybe fucking help off P.J. Tucker. I don't know. <laughs> I claim to be a brilliant basketball mind, but I know I'm not really. But it seems pretty clear that they could have been more aggressive with that stuff. They could have been sharper with that stuff. And I get it. Like the last game of the regular season, they sent doubles to Joel Embiid and PJ Tucker hit threes behind it. Whatever. Like this is James Harden was going. James Harden was killing you. Force him to do something else. Force them to do something else. Force them to feel uncomfortable. And the Celtics have just let people feel comfortable for the last five games. They let Trey Young do it. They let John Collins do it. They let DeAndre Hunter do it. Now they let the Sixers do it. And it's possible that it totally changed the series and left them like allow. It's going to allow Joel Embiid more time to get back. It it was a a bad bad loss especially when you shoot 59% against a team with no Joel Embiid you have to play good enough defense to win that game you just have to what happened was there anything schematically on the DeAnthony Melton takeover of the second quarter cuz if i'm looking at just the box score from the second quarter James Harden only had four shots five points like, they did a pretty good job on all of the Sixers other than DeAnthony Melton, who was 5-for-7, 4-for-4 from deep. So, was it helping off him when they shouldn't have? Was it just DeAnthony Melton hitting some tough shots? Because, actually, and I think I tweeted this out, I thought their defense was, in the first half, was not, like, at, like they did all the things of not, like, uh, making the it uncomfortable, but in terms of, like, limiting shots at the rim or the restricted area and forcing the Sixers into mid-range, I thought they actually did a pretty decent job. It's just then DeAnthony Melton came in, and all of a sudden the Sixers had 11 threes at halftime, five of them from DeAnthony Melton. So what the hell is happening with DeAnthony Melton? Why why was he able to just go off in that second quarter for 14 points? Because he was actually DeAnthony Smelton. Are you stealing my joke, my tweet from last night? <laughs> I just thought I'd share that with the podcast listeners who may not be in tune with you on Twitter during the game because that w- that one was pretty good. I'll, I'll give it to you. <laughs> I appreciate that. But seriously, what the wh- how did how, how did that happen? Like I don't remember his shots being egregiously wide open. I just remember him being like, "Here he goes again, just knocking down like a slightly contested three. 
Like, and and if he doesn't go off that much, the Celtics head into halftime with a bigger lead. I'm not saying they like guarantee you to win the game, but I like, thought their defense was okay, other than just letting him just be on fire, just from letting him smelt. Oh yeah, the the first one was like toward the end of the shot clock, and I didn't think it was that bad defense. Uh, but Malcolm Brogdon just lost him for a second at the end of the shot clock, and that was his mistake. Melton hit a tough, tough shot. Um, the second one was like decent contest. Derek White was there. Third one, decent contest from Brogdon. He was there. Um, there was like a couple of times Jalen just seemed to like leave him. and I don't know. M- Melton – the shots he took, he probably won't be five up for five a lot of the time, and and you do have to provide help on somewhere. But I don't know. I I didn't find too much um, too much wrong with the way they guarded him. Like the the shots that he hit was like the Sixers had to execute and find him, and he had to have a quick release. And sometimes that stuff will just happen. All right, let's flip to the other side of the ball because I mentioned the amazing Celtics first half just statistically uh, shooting 70, I guess 72%, all the points coming in the paint or at the three or at the free throw line. In the second half, they only scored 21 points in the uh, third quarter. They have the kind of just prevent offense, especially down the stretch. I thought like there was the they had nine turnovers in the second half which is not good. There was the kind of Jalen Brown driving to nowhere, jumping and not really know what to do with it. That happened. Marcus Smart had a couple of uh, not great passes. Derek White had a couple of not great passes. Um, Tatum was less efficient. He was only three of ten, but like he got to the free throw line eight times or four times for eight shots. And I actually like thought he was a doing a pretty good job of just like putting his head down and attacking, but still the offense was not as crisp as it was in the, and just as easy as it was in the first half. What was the difference there? And um, I guess answer just the general second half offense question. And then we can talk later about uh, just the shitty execution down the, down the last final four minutes. Yeah. And I think, that's why Joe Mazzulla didn't love the Celtics offense in the game because in the second half, they only shot 12 three-point attempts, which is way, way, way beneath where they normally are. And I think Tatum was three for nine in the paint in the second half. And some of the, like... one of those was unlucky. The I think the last two minute report said Harden fouled him. It did. It did. They were going to be up six, you know, with a minute uh, forty going. It's not a big deal. They missed a call. No big deal. It doesn't. But, but, by the way, how do they say that was not a shot clock violation? Like I literally watched the play and the sh- clock was at fucking zero with the light off, and Maxi did not have the ball in his hands. I don't it's get it. almost like an organization reviewing their own work cannot be trusted for an honest, objective review of what's happening. It's like when you uh, just imagine Steve Javi reading all of these last minute reports and then it will make a lot more sense. 
I'm shocked they ever admit a mistake. Well, they didn't even admit when Jimmy Butler fucking double stiff-armed Pat Connaughton. They said Pat Connaughton fouled him. Or earlier in that game when they blew the whistle on an absolutely just not a foul by, who is that, Kyle Lowry? And then they eventually reviewed it and said it wasn't a foul. They had the gall to call it a correct call, even though it was an absolutely, like, blow inadvertent whistle that totally screwed over Miami they were like no no correct call we reviewed it and got it right um so the last two minute report is a whole bunch of nonsense but I agree the 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 three point like it they read their own press clippings and saw how easy it was to get to the rim in the first half and then it kind of felt like we're not we're not even driving to kick we're just driving to try and get to the rim and whether or not it was their rim reads uh, or it's just increased turnovers, um, the same kind of like process, pass and kick, pass and kick. We just did not see that from them in the second half. Yeah, it wasn't even remotely similar. And that, that's that's what pissed off Missoula. And that's why he's basically said like, and that's why he's he seemed to be more upset about the offensive execution than anything else, which, which is funny because <laughs> They like, they really didn't play great defense at all and haven't for a little while. Um, but some of, I mean some of the offensive execution down the stretch was just poor, just poor. And it was just, weird because like there's some possessions where it's like they looked almost too pass happy. I'm just trying to think like the Brogdon possession where he ended up throwing it to Maxi, which was a clear shot clock violation, but doesn't matter. Um, Four different guys, like, passed up open shots. Uh, and the Celtics, like, shot profile was so good in the first half. That was, like, all pretty much all in the restricted area and threes that they looked like they completely just, like, we're not we're just not going to entertain the idea of a mid-range jump shot. But, like, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, I would even throw Malcolm Brogdon in there, are all very capable of t- make, taking and making mid-range jump shots. And um, I don't know, it just like it looked like they were in the second half, their approach was like, if we can't get to the rim, we're just not going to do anything else. And that's just um, not how they've played basketball for this entire year. They've been one of the most three point happy teams. Um, and so, yeah. And, and I think the, the zone had something to do with that. Like, there's something about a zone. Even NBA teams just kind of just go on their heels. And and part of it is like you don't want to settle against a zone. But and I think the Celtics decided that they weren't going to settle and probably just leaned too far into it. That was another thing Missoula stressed stressed today was shoot it when you're open. <laughs> I think he said it four or five times. Shoot it when you're open. That's it. Uh those are the offensive adjustments that a truly brilliant mind makes. Just shoot it when you're open. Uh, and so he did not think they shot it when they were open, which was true. They had they definitely passed up a bunch of shots that they could have taken in in favor of looking to get to the hoop and probably, like you said, just just really thought they could get to the rim at will after scoring 26 points in the paint in the first quarter, 40 in the first half, which is insane. Um, then, but some some of this, like the Brog, I, I, I still think it should have been a shot clock violation, but it was so close, and it's it's bang, bang. And 
when you're a referee. Better to not blow the whistle in that situation. Actually, I don't know. Is it better to blow the whistle? You don't want to if like if you mess up, you don't want to give up like take away the Sixers' wide open layup. And so it is actually probably better to not blow the whistle in that situation. Yeah. So when you're a referee, like it's it was so close. You're seeing it live. You're not like I. I literally had to like freeze frame it <laughs> for the to see the ball not yet in his hands. Um, before, but it, it was just an unforgivable pass. It was just an awful pass from Malcolm Brogdon after they passed up a bunch of shots on that. Like j- at that point, just take the fucking shot clock. Um, like just 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 Grayson Allen it and just Euro step your way to a fucking <laughs> violation or Grayson's case it was the end of a game. Um but to to just turn around and fire it directly to Tyrese Maxey, like the Celtics, they deserved that run out. They deserved that bucket. They deserved that that poor play. Uh what what adjustments do you want them to make in game two beyond just like play harder? I well, I think I was speaking before about just like show two to the ball more and force B ball Paul to, you know what? If if you're gonna force B ball Paul or PJ Tucker to play four on three, like and they beat you, you tip your cap. But like, get the ball out of James Harden and Tyrese Maxey's hand and like double in a way that like makes sense. Like I can think of a couple possessions where, like. They were trying to isolate on Horford, and Marcus Smart did a real good job of, like, pre-switching, so, like, getting Horford out of there. But then they just – Philadelphia just ran another, like, pick and roll and just ended up back on Horford. Like, they just need to be a lot more intentional uh, about just their effort on the defensive end. There's a couple possessions. There's one that sticks out to me where it's just, like – Jalen, like Marcus Smart, I thought was doing a pretty good job fighting through screens and making it so it wasn't like easy pull up threes. Like the James Harden step back, he's fucking very good at it. It's probably his most elite talent is to hit a step back. Like I just don't think there's a lot of adjustments to be made there, but he should not be walking into threes. And there's just some screens I remember of whether it was Jalen, and I think Brogdon did it too, of just absolutely dying on that screen and not fighting through and allowing that to be just an incredibly easy shot for both him um, and Maxi. So I think it just needs to be like just much more attention to the pick-and-roll ball handler, whether it's Maxi or whether it's Harden. And then from a rotation adjustment, I love Al Horford, but... Maybe if you're going to go just a single big, I know they love the kind of five-out ability that that gives them, and I'm sure that's why they thought they had so much success uh, of going to the rim uh, because they are able to spread out the Sixers. But I feel like Robert Williams was pretty good in his minutes when he did play in this game. I thought he actually had some sort of uh, a decent impact on uh, the boards, there was like a lot of opportunities to throw lobs to him, which was part of like their success at the rim. If you're going into a, like the Sixers are going into a zone, I feel like just having a guy with a lot of vertical spacing and gravity there who's like you can't really leave is just an adjustment there. So I want to see more lineups. Like if you're going to go a single big, let's put four perimeter wing players around Robert Williams and see what that can do because 
one, I think it it changes just the looks you're getting uh, on the defensive end, but I just think it's a, a different threat. Uh, and it forces the Sixers to defend you differently um, than they were able to just like throw out a casual zone uh, in the second half. Yeah. And a, a lot of people were like, have been really uh, critical of Al Horford's defense over the last few games, the way the Atlanta went at him, the way Philadelphia went at him a little bit last night. I genuinely don't believe too much of it is his fault. Um, the one play when Tobias Harris beat him at the end of the shot clock. Oh, it's just a dipsy doodle, and they're just like running around in circles for that was a huge seconds. bucket too. Like that fourth was quarter, so frustrating. They played nearly perfect defense for twenty one seconds, twenty two seconds, and then Tobias Harris just like loops around and ends up beating Al to the hoop, and like nobody helped. Jason Tatum's man was thirty feet from the basket with like one second left on the shot clock and Tatum didn't help. Like I know DeAnthony Melton was hot, but at, in that moment, he's not a threat. He's 30 feet from the hoop. And I know in, in the moment it's, it's tough to calculate all that stuff. And, and, and you're not necessarily expecting Al Horford to get beat off the dribble with two seconds left and all that. But I just thought that in that moment, it was appropriate to abandon whatever the plan was and just go help because your guy was near half court and the ball handler was just going in for an open bucket. Um, But other than that, like I just feel like it's not on Al. The Celtics, they have to do a much better job at the point of attack. They have to do a much better job in help. They have to do a much better job communicating on switches and everything else. The play when Paul Reed just went, just cut straight to the hoop and none of the Celtics even reacted. Like, never mind. They like, weren't even prepared for the idea of like, we're showing two to the ball on James Harden. Like they had no idea that Paul Reed had, was like capable of catching a roll to the rim. That had never crossed their mind. It, that was a, a stunning breakdown. And Marcus Smart was all pissed off about it. Looked like he, Looked like they were supposed to switch. He was switching out to get Maxi, who was the ball handler, and Paul Reed just dove to the hoop. Jalen Brown and Derek White both had their fingers up their asses while they were both on James Harden, and Paul Reed just just was all alone, totally alone. Just they, just bad, bad defense. Um, they got to get something more from the bench because. Sam Hauser didn't do shit. Grant Williams didn't do shit except like, do you, if when you play Grant Williams, do you have to switch everything one through five? Cause then I think you have the same problem. It was like, all right, it's just James Harden on Grant Williams. But like they, and I would, I, I know Derek White technically started, but he basically was a bench player in this game. Um, he played 27 minutes. Brogdon played 33. Derek White didn't really do anything. And so I feel like, you have to get a little bit more from your non, I guess, star players. And I just don't think they got anything from Derek White, Grant Williams, or Sam Hauser. Yeah, and Grant Williams, obviously, when he's out there, it's often to switch. 
And there was one moment, I don't know how many minutes he played. Four. Four, four minutes. And one of the plays that stood out the most was he switched on to Harden, and Harden just blew by him and hit a floater. Just absolutely blew by him, dusted him, and hit a floater. And okay, if you're out there to switch, if you're out there because you're big enough and physical enough to guard the one guy who's killing your team, then you cannot be just getting absolutely dusted. And this was three minutes left in the first quarter, and Harden had to hit a tough shot over Robert Williams, like just a tough floater, but absolutely got burned. And wasn't even really like that, that was that was bad and it was late in the shot clock you got to stay in front and so i i didn't i wasn't surprised that they went away from him after that like that's why you're there that's that's what you have to do guard that man and if you can't stay in front of him then they got to go to somebody else i do think this could be a robert williams series in a way the atlanta one wasn't um the like the Sixers are going to switch a lot. They're going to play zone, and just seems like having the guy who can fly over everyone and and get offensive rebounds and do all that stuff could be pretty important. I don't know. And then, but that said, like. The offense was ridiculous. <laughs> it was it was awesome for most of the game, and you just have to you just have to win a game when you have that type of offensive performance. Um, Do you want to hear my uh, insane sports optimist positive spin on this? Y- yes. Okay, so this version of the Boston Celtics is guaranteed to have a letdown at some point in the series. Oh, Marcus Smart it, is questionable for game two. Oh, that's uh, interesting. With what sort of injury? Chest contusion. Oh, he got contused in the chest, eh? Um, when did that happen? I don't remember. It happened in the second half. He was, uh, I think, Tobias Harris. He had a collision with Tobias Harris, and afterward you could see like Smart kind of holding his chest a lot. He was on the bench, and there was a moment when I actually thought, Smart might have just been like really fucking pissed off at all of his teammates, and maybe he was. But uh, I was I was just observing during the the huddle, and Smart was just kind of out of it, and and to the point where Al Horford went over and like I think he checked on him, and and you could see Smart just like point to his chest after that. So I, I could tell it was that he was hurting, not that he just wanted to kill everyone on his team. Um, oh, oh, I can guarantee you two things. Tomorrow, before the game, Marcus Smart's going to tell you that he's in a tremendous amount of pain and that he can barely breathe and that it's a horrific, horrific injury. Second, Marcus Smart's going to play in the basketball game. Marcus Smart loves talking about how hurt he is, and then he also loves fuel taking that pain and that hurt into doing ridiculous things on the basketball court and so 
I don't know if this will necessarily change things, but I do know that Marcus Smart's going to tell you it hurts a lot and that he's going to play. Yeah, that's probably what will happen. It, I would assume it would have to be pretty bad for him not to play because his chest is bruised. Um, but you could tell he was in a lot of discomfort during the game. So I'm I'm maybe, not shocked that he's on the injury report. Maybe that was the reason for uh, his many, many second-half turnovers. Who knows? He did have yeah. – did have four turnovers in the second half. But back to my um, absurd positive spin on this game. The Celtics are guaranteed, this version of the Celtics are guaranteed to have a stupid letdown game seemingly in every playoff series that they play. It happened in game five against Milwaukee last year. It happened game six against Miami. It happened in game five against the Hawks last round. Given that, isn't it better to get it out of the way early? And so the Celtics colossal fuck up, it happened in game one. Now they can lock in for games two, three, and four. Now my prediction is they're going to lock in for game two. It's going to be a, a, a pretty easy victory. Game three, it, and it, a lot of this is depends on when Joel Embiid comes back and if he can be effective. I'm penciling in Joel for a game four return. I think the Celtics win the next three games. Joel comes back in game four and doesn't look that great. And then everyone's like, oh, the Celtics have this series. Boom. Colossal failure in game five. Utterly disappointing. Probably give up an 18-point lead in the fourth quarter. And then they respond to that because the Celtics have shown they're very, very good at responding to their failures in the playoffs. They schedule it out for games one and game five, and then they respond in game six and win the series. What do you think about that? That (laughs) seems like it could be true. You never know. You never know. They are certainly a team that zigs when you think they might zag. They zag when they think they might zig. They play beautiful basketball for 30 minutes and then are just a clogged toilet for possessions at a time. You never really know. Um, But they need to fix the defense. That needs to be priority number one. Fix the defense. At least least force some turnovers. (laughs) At least force some... Shots that are uncomfortable. Guys feel a little tighter when they take those. It, it was a, uh, and I mean, who knows when Joel Embiid will get back? But he hasn't even ran on the court yet, so I'm like, you got, not you got, really you got to win the games when Joel Embiid misses, though. Not this Celtics team. There was like everyone in that stadium knew they were losing yesterday when they walked in. At least I did. Maybe I have the brilliant basketball mind. Yeah, I think you are. Um, I just want to address two of the comments before we get to uh, some callers here in the live room. If anyone wants to hop on, let's press that raise hand button. We'll try to talk to as many people as possible. First, Dylan C. says, Bold of Sam to call Marcus out for faking when he just pretended to have the flu for a week. Two corrections here. I was not saying that Marcus Smart's faking his injury. 
I think Marcus Smart is generally injured and is often injured. He's just more forthcoming than any player about the amount of pain that he is in, and he's very willing to talk about being in pain compared to another player would not be uh, in an excuse. Second, you guys had to suffer through me coughing on a podcast for a week and a half. I generally try to the care about The podcast that you out- showed up to, by the way, because you didn't show up to all of them. I, I missed one podcast, correct. I believe it was two. Um, oh, I'm so sorry that you had to podcast on your own. But uh, I don't think I'm a good enough actor to fake uh, that cough. And so I was not faking the flu. Marcus Smart is not faking an injury. Speaking of Marcus Smart, Reese says, can't win with Smart in the clutch. That is a dumb comment, Reese. Uh, what happened in game six of the series against the Atlanta Hawks? Marcus Smart hitting a huge three and making all the right plays down the stretch. What happened in the Nets series uh, in round one last year? It's Marcus Smart making an amazing pass to Jason Tatum at the buzzer so they win game one. Even last night, he had two huge and ones and a pass to Al Horford that were some of the good moments for the Celtics down the clutch. So. So it's really just selective nonsense or selective rage to be upset about Marcus Smart. Does he play, make frustrating decisions? Yes. Does he also do a whole bunch of good and generally in the aggregate is a positive for the team? Absolutely. Um, all right, let's get to the stage now. Oh, it's Dylan C., the person who's accusing me of being a faker, faker, Minneapolis Laker. Uh, Dylan C., come on down. Thanks for joining us. Faker, faker, Minneapolis Laker. What the fuck is that? That's a common. That's a common saying. People use it all the time. That was shameful. Well, thanks for bringing me up. Uh, and <laughs> Sam, I, I know you were faking, but uh, that's all right. We can let you say whatever you want. I have the power to cut you off, Dylan. I can remove you from the stage right now. I just want you to know that. I know. I'm aware. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll walk it back a little bit. Uh, but really quick, I just wanted to say first. Uh, Jay, you won't remember this, but about five years ago, I was a freshman looking at uh, majors and was talking to a bunch of people in the industry and uh, you were the only one to reply and you gave me a call and we kind of talked about advice and and I haven't talked to you since then, but I just wanted to say I I still think about that and I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, next up for the questions, first for Jay, what's the difference between a zig and a zag? And my next question (laughs) is, is there any reason why we can't review the uh the shot clock violation because you can review it if they call it do you guys know if there's any reason why you can't go back and be like okay we missed the call it's philly ball you know inbound why why can't you go back and do that after the fast break happens thanks the uh yeah i I mean they they ruled that it was the proper call there first of all i want to just apologize on behalf of all the assholes who didn't get back to you like, oh, well, how do you know up. that you? How do you know you gave like good advice though? Like, what I've, if I've, they I've probably steered him in the wrong direction? Yeah, you I, were probably uh, more of a negative on his career than the assholes who didn't get back to him. <laughs> that is entirely possible. Even as a a brilliant basketball mind like myself, sometimes I zig when others zag. Um, oh yeah, answer that question. Define the difference. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I I would say. Uh, you know, it's like yin and yang. Yeah, I mean, you're but right. different. When you're, when you're right, you're right. 
but different. Well, uh, I mean, most people zig is the thing. And so zagging is doing what's not really anticipated because everyone is out there doing the zigs. And so I think zagging is just by by default kind of the unanticipated, the not the normal path, the path less taken. But then when everyone else is doing it's kind of a paradox because when the, uh, the zag turns into the zig, then everything reverses. Oh, wow. I have just researched it. And it turns out zig and zag both mean the same thing. No, nah, no, nah, I'm pretty sure I just gave an excellent explanation for uh, the difference between the two. They both. I'm using mean the, the same colloquial thing. definition. I don't need your Webster uh, definition for this statutory interpretation question. This was StackExchange.com. I don't even know if that's a reputable website. I don't think it is. But to answer the question <laughs> about reviewable, the the referees, I don't know if this is a hard and fast rule, but they're very reluctant and maybe even banned from reviewing something where there wasn't a whistle. It's like if they miss a foul call and don't blow the whistle, it's not like they can go back cuz like how much of the game does are they they're going to let it play? before they go back and review it like if if there was not a stop and play until the final buzzer are they then going to go back and review the like shot clock violation and then take it from there like there's just certain things that if they don't blow a whistle it's just absolutely not reviewable uh and i just think that's just like policy for flow of the game and things like that because i guess they could have blown the whistle immediately after the maxi layup and then reviewed it but it's just like they're they're not going to do that like kind of in the flow of basketball game. They're that would just lead to a, a um, so many unnecessary reviews. While we're on the topic of reviews, there was at least some level of irritation within the Celtics organization that PJ oh, uh, Tucker's ball tap did not result in any sort of punishment. That was not a ball tap. That was a flying fist. Uh, rotation like, directly to like there was that was not a natural basketball movement it, maybe he could have argued that he did it in frustration but there was just no rhyme or reason for why pj tucker did a swinging hammer fist after giving up a transition <laughs> layup that happened to land directly in uh jason tatum's do you watch uh jersey shore I mean, I'm familiar with the the program. I can't. Do you say remember when Jay Wow hit Mike the situation with like a spinning fist? It was sort of like I can't that. Say I'm familiar the with the situation, but sort of like that, just, except to the nuts. Um, I didn't think it was probably intentional. Based on, it would have just taken a, a serious amount of coordination to like. Like it was no look. It was a no look nut tap. I do think it's weird that like you have one of the star players unexpectedly writhing in pain on the ground after like where he threw the pass in transition, and just from a lack of curiosity standpoint, like hey, I wonder what, wonder happened to Tatum on that play? Maybe we oh we got hit in the in the junk. I wonder how that happens. Like the willingness they are to review these plays in other contexts, it was kind of bizarre that they didn't do it. And the response that, like, we're not just going to review anything you ask 
Well, that's kind of how it works in every other context when a player gets like hit in the nuts or uh, gets hit in the face on a layup or anything like that. It's just like, you know, when, when a player is on the ground writhing in pain, it's usually a, a decent idea to try and figure out, hey, how'd that happen? That's not normal. Yeah, and I think uh, my, I, I've, I've always take the stance that I, uh, I prefer not to see guys get punished too severely for cheap shots or borderline cheap shots or JK whatever. pro cheap shot encouraging but, cheap shots yeah I mean I, I sided with Draymond Green in the DeMontis Sabonis nonsense so that's, well, that was more of a procedural issue than a substantive issue <laughs> but anyway I just think there's a lack of We saw James Harden get ejected from a game for a lesser ball tap. We saw Dylan Brooks get ejected from the game for a lesser ball tap. Can we talk about Dylan Brooks for a second? Yeah, we got <laughs> we got to talk about Dylan Brooks. It I have never seen this in the history of my basketball fandom that as soon as the season ends, the team explicitly says, "Hell no." You are never coming back to our team. Like, normally it's just a quiet, like, and maybe you get to hear a little rumor uh, here or there that they, eh, they're not really interested in re-signing that guy. But, like, it's strategically, like, maybe you, like another team wants to sign him and you can do a sign-in trade. Nope. The Grizzlies were like, we're giving up all of that. Dylan Brooks will never be on our basketball team ever again. And it's just a fantastic fantastic turn in what the Dylan Brooks like villain story is. I am so excited for the next time See, he plays basketball in Memphis. This pissed me off. And and not as because a, as, a, as a pro uh, cheap shot guy. <laughs> as somebody who like that dude all his flaws aside. He shoots too much. He can't shoot. He talks reckless. He doesn't seem to have the most realistic view of himself. And some of his comments after the season made it clear he wanted a different role than the one he had. And they try to make him 3 and D. And he thinks he has more to his game than that. You look at the usage rate. It's insane that he had a 28% usage rate last season. <laughs> I didn't know that until today when I looked at his stats. And was just bamboozled, flummoxed, everything. To, to realize he had a 28% usage rate, which is like damn near star level usage for a guy who's clearly not a star. So he's, he's delusional about his offensive game. That said, have some respect for a guy who helped change around your franchise, who played uh. his balls off, played his balls off, Every single night, guarded the best player on the other team every single night. It is so weak, assuming the Grizzlies leaked that. And I have to assume it was the Grizzlies because Dylan Brooks' side, there's no way Dylan Brooks was like, oh, yeah, they told me they want no part of me forever. You don't, you don't think me. that helps his value? You don't think his agent was putting it out there? No. So assuming this was the Grizzlies, and I think it has to be because – they're the ones who benefit from at least easing the fan base because the fan base has turned against Dylan Brooks. Everyone has turned against Dylan Brooks. 
leaking that is so fucked up. It the season just ended. Do your business, handle your team the way you want to, but but show show the guy who played his balls off a little respect. And listen, listen, no, he's I, not I, the I would... only one. He's not the only one who talked reckless. He's not the only one who f- fucking handed out checks that they couldn't fucking cash. They all of them did it. Every single one of them on that team. They got a guy out there, John Morant. They got him out there getting suspended for gun stuff. Not even his first gun incident. And and then they it's it's just so weak to come out. The GM before this leak today in exit interviews said uh that Dylan Brooks like had some I think it was self self-created distractions. The guy talked a little shit. Like well, how are you so soft? That the guy just talks a little shit and you're calling it self-created distractions? Like, just that, that whole franchise is is in a pathetic state right now. And not everything should be put on Dylan Brooks. Although he made himself the easiest scapegoat in the entire world. And certainly did not help them solve anything in that first round against the Lakers. And uh, they shouldn't want him back on their basketball team. Which is fine, but just ha- handle it like <laughs> handle no, it. Show the guy a little bit of fucking respect on they, the way out the, the fucking door. Ultimate respect is radical transparency. What the GM should have done is said it with his chest in the press conference. The weak move is leaking it to Shams. <laughs> Say it with your chest and be like, you know what? You know, Dylan, you know exactly where this organization stands on the issue of you playing basketball for us. It's going to be a no for us, dog. Keep on packing. And so keep on packing, keep on walking, pack up your stuff and go. All of those things. I I respect the radical transparency. I would have respected it more if they came out and said it rather than a media leak. But um, I thought it was fantastic entertainment. We have four people waiting on the line, so I want to get to them. Let's go to Griffin P. Thanks for joining us here on Anything Is Potable. Griff Dog. Oh, hello. Can you guys hear me? Hello. Yes, oh, sir. Okay, cool. Uh, so I just wanted to ask, uh, past, you know, actually breaking down the series, like, as they go and actually seeing what loses the seas these games, like, just zooming out, like, looking at this team over the past, like, two years, like, what, why, do you guys have any theories as to why this team is, is the type to do this stuff where they just like they they always put themselves in a corner they throw away games things like that like what past the actual decisions that they're making like is there something going on is it just like the expectations are so high for this group and that we've seen them play so well and obviously making the finals last year and everything like what is it that just causes these guys to like lay an egg sometimes and just like stop playing and and give away games and play down to guys? Like what, what what do you, what do you speculate on with that? I think part of the answer is that the, it's just really hard to win in the NBA playoffs. And because the Celtics are extremely good because they are now, or at least were before the game one loss, I'm not sure what it is now. They have become the title favorite when they lose, it's easy to question like who they are, what they do, what they do. 
it's easy to point to all that stuff. Um, and I, I mean, you look at, let's go to the Warriors. They lost game one of the Sacramento series because they couldn't stop anybody down the stretch and Andrew Wiggins missed a big three. They lost game six with a chance to close out the Kings. They they got blasted at home, which forced them to extend the series to game seven. And Steph was amazing and they advanced. But it's it's just hard to win. It doesn't matter who you are. It is hard to win in the NBA. And so sometimes I think like semi-normal losses from the Celtics get blown up into something that they're really not. Now you can look back and they've certainly had their share of, of bad losses. Um, the, the collapse game five against Milwaukee stands out as one of the biggest, the, the Miami series certainly could have gone easier last year. The Atlanta series, the game five, the, the last, however many minutes of that was just bad. Then you look at game six and, they did everything perfectly down the stretch, pretty much, and closed out the Hawks and got that win. I think right now their biggest problem is their defense, which they always could rely on last year. That was amazing. That was the best in the playoffs last year. I think it ranked second in the playoffs last year, but considering the level of competition, which was Kevin Durant, Kyrie, Giannis, Jimmy Butler, Steph, everybody, um, they had – the best defense in the NBA during the playoffs last year. And it's not even close to that right now. Um, so you can point, you can always point to like a, a few plays at the end of a, a close game. But to me right now there, it's not about like the failures down the stretch. They definitely did it against the Atlanta game yesterday. They could have won, but right now it's the defense. They just need to be better defensively. Yeah, I think you're right in saying that it's just like it's incredibly hard. I would say to be consistent in this NBA, and like I think we saw that with the like the Bucks went on a championship run two years ago and seemingly did everything right, and then just had a complete meltdown on back to back games with Giannis, like one presumably the best player in the league. And so I think especially in the playoffs when you're playing against the better teams and the pressure is on you, I think it's just incredibly hard to consistently be great. And so the only player that I can think of, I only can think of like two guys who are of like, I would describe as like consistently great. It's like LeBron and Steph. But even you say that like LeBron has had his, shitty finals appearances like there's the loss to the Mavericks the series the Mavericks was like not good and he's had bad down moments you just mentioned Steph like the Warriors were absolutely awful in game six of that series but the best players like Steph did can respond in the next game but I just think it there's this like there is something to just like the 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 I guess heartbreaking fashion in which the the Celtics have found themselves or managed to lose but I just it's like incredibly rare to just sweep series or to dominate games, especially later in the playoffs where you're going to get up against the best opponents. And so I just think a lot of this is on Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, who are still quite young and still learning how to 
win and be more consistent down the stretch of games. And so uh, I just think it's a, a kind of, it's a difficult ask and everything gets kind of blown out of proportion when there is, I mean, maybe not even blown out of proportion. It's the playoffs and people break down everything with a, a, a fine tooth microscope. But um, like the, the fact of the matter is they had those bad losses last year and responded each time with a victory. Let's not talk about the down the, the final six minutes of the game against Miami in game seven. Cause my God, that was a meltdown. Um, but <laughs> They have managed to uh, kind of respond to these moments of, of, like, failures. And it's like, what happens if they just, like, had that bad quarter instead of it being in the fourth quarter in the first? Like, do we view this game differently if the the Sixers were just, like, up by five the entire time? Um, I guess maybe. It's like you can say they're not clutch, but, like, I don't know. Sometimes you just lose basketball games because the other team makes more plays. And it's not, like, like, necessary reflection on, like, how much that person cares or they're like their greatness or anything like that. It's just like, you're also playing against other great basketball players who sometimes make more plays than you do. Yeah. I think especially before a team wins a title and when they're great, like you just, the expectations are so high and all you've seen in the past, I don't want to like getting to the finals and losing to the Warriors is not a failure, but, we've never seen them win a title before. And so you're looking for what's wrong with them. And really like, it's, it's really impressive to me (laughs) that those dudes have dealt, have handled everything that's come their way. And I've talked about this on the podcast a ton of times, but from the Kyrie stuff to when everything was a disaster to, Al Horford leaves, Gordon Hayward leaves, <laughs> Brad Stevens decides not to be a head coach anymore. Um, There's just a million things, huge losses, huge home losses, huge devastating losses in a series. They've had fights with each other. They've just like persevered through it all. So to me, it's nothing wrong with their fabric. You can definitely point to some some mistakes they make in the clutch and sometimes they're not as solid as you want and sometimes this season for sure their defense has has not lived up to its end of the bargain and they need to fix that but the uh I don't I don't think it's like a personal shortcoming of this group I think sometimes you just lose in in basketball and sometimes you win in basketball yeah Is no that crazy? I mean, wild perspective there from uh Jay King, brilliant basketball mind. We go now to <laughs> Wyatt N. Wyatt, thank you for joining us here on Anything is Potable. Hey, guys. You uh, mentioned their difference in defense in the postseason versus in uh, in regular season, especially looking at last night's game. Do we think it's an issue with the strategies that they're employing against the opposing teams, or is it just the players on the court needing to – implement those strategies more effectively that's a good question um and the thing that i had a problem with in game one against philly was like i said they just they never got to the point where they were taking away philly's comfort it's not it's not about switching it's not about the drop 
you can play all that stuff and still be really effective. It's when he's dribbling 10 times in the post on Marcus Smart, you cannot just let him go one-on-one. He's one of the most gifted offensive players in NBA history. There has to be at least someone to to get there and force him to do something he doesn't want to do. And, and so I don't know whether that's on the scheme. Is, are they told not to help? Are they told <laughs> to let him dribble fucking 11 times in a row? I don't know. Um, I'm just but, watching that Tobias, that Tobias Harris bucket from last night. And like Jason Tatum uh, is like, I guess would be the primary help defender after Tobias goes right and then turns back around. For some reason, he just runs all the way up to uh, DeAnthony Melton, who's basically by the logo and is not able to help at all. Malcolm Brogdon is standing uh, in the paint in the dunker spot and just doesn't move the entire possession from that position. And so it feels like part of it is just like they need to be locked in way more. And you hear the phrase, and this was the phrase last year when the defense was going well, like five guys moving on a string. There's no string. They, they, the, the Celtics defense do not have a string right now. And it's, I think it's, it's part scheme and trying to do stuff more, uh, make guys like Harden and Trey Young more uncomfortable. But part of it is just like, basic effort of sending that help defender or not dying on screens or, or just thing like being locked in and being fully intense on that side of the court for 48 minutes is what's going to get them victories here in the playoffs. And I just, I don't think we've seen it other than the final couple of minutes. I think they were pretty good defensively and for games one and two against the Hawks. And then the final minutes of game six, they were really locked in, but we haven't seen like a sustained just like, maximum effort on defense from this team um in the playoffs so far yeah and maybe that's because they took the hawks a little lightly maybe it's because they took they the took sixers a little sixers lightly without, without Joel Embiid. lightly um and maybe to the the previous question like maybe that's a, a flaw of, of this team is like when things go well they don't always handle it really well or when they think things will be easy, they have a way of making things difficult on themselves. That was kind of a bar. Um, but I wasn't paying attention. What'd you say? I said, when they think things are going to be easy, they make things difficult on themselves. I'd say it's like a, more of a common sentence, but uh, go off King. <laughs> <laughs> let me give my, let me pat myself on the back a little bit. God damn. A little, little phrase there with a uh, maybe a conjunction in the middle, a transition word, but go. Yeah, that was dope. Bars for days. Um, what? Speaking of that, now nah, I won't share this on the podcast. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you later though. Okay. But, but yeah, the, the defense just needs to be a lot better, and and maybe they just don't have that level of defense anymore. That's entirely possible. They finished second in the regular season, which is really good. But at no point during the regular season did I watch them and think that is an overwhelming defense. No, they had stretches of like very good defense where they were uh, forced a lot of turnovers. And defense is a lot easier when your offense is that good and you playing a lot of more half court. But like this was not the the like impossible to score on team that we saw at the end of last season. Um, and it's interesting because last year was like. 
their defense is going to keep them in the games as long as they just don't turn the ball over. They're going to like they're going to be fine. And this year it's like the offense is going to keep them in the games as long as they don't turn the ball over. They should be fine. Turns out turnovers are important in the playoffs. Turnovers that's are a, a that's a bar, Jay King. That's a bar. <laughs> turnovers matter, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, let's go to Alan L. Uh, join us here in the Athletic Live Room. Alan, how are you doing? Yes, sir. Yeah, buddy. Uh, so we just watched that whole first round with Atlanta where it seemed like we didn't really have a great response to the Trey Young pick and roll. And then it happened again against the Sixers. And now, like, I'm starting to think, is this just a a team that can't defend pick and rolls well in the playoffs. And it seems like they tried a bunch of things that game. They switched, they played drop, they switched and then doubled. They iced it a couple times and like, I don't know, nothing worked. Like, do you think that there's an issue with execution or personnel? Why is the pick and roll been so bad all playoffs or the pick and roll defense? Yeah, that's a really good question. And definitely their pick-and-roll defense has not been good. Their half-court defense has not been good. They rank 13th right now in half-court defenses among the playoff teams, including the playing teams that lost and didn't make the the actual playoffs, Um, which is not good. Part of it is just that Trey Young is super gifted in the pick-and-roll, one of the most gifted guys, one of the best passers, can stretch you out to near midcourt part of it is that james harden was just fantastic last night um but i do think pick and roll ball handlers uh in the league i can think of like just in terms of guys who can hit a step back three but then also are very good at distribution of the basketball and like top top tier pnr guys yeah but for for some reason like the Celtics just haven't been able to attack opposing offenses. They haven't been able to to disrupt them. They haven't been able to force turnovers. And that that's the stuff that that really to me is is telling and maybe it just suggests that they haven't been up for these games like they should. Maybe it suggests they're overlooking these games even though they shouldn't um but they haven't even come close to the level of disruption that they need and a lot of that is in the pick and roll um although i will say like those guys are are really tough to guard in pick and rolls but again the Celtics they they ran into a lot of fucking good players last year and they, it, it, things were different then, though. They played mostly big lineups. They had a lot of size on the court all the time. They're playing a lot smaller now, and that matters. Um, offensive rebounds have sometimes been an issue for them in this playoffs. They were the best defensive rebounding team in the league during the regular season. They ran into a Hawks team that's really athletic and strong and was really feisty. Um, but pick and roll is definitely something they need to shore up and I just, to me, it's not necessarily about like what they're doing. 
Like, are you, are you icing it? Are you switching it? Are you doubling? Whatever. It's like, they need to just ramp up that intensity. They need to keep guys guessing. They need to disrupt the rhythm that these guys have had. And they haven't done any of it. Yeah, it, it, the defense has been bad. It's been bad. Yeah, I think it's – they need to do something other than just switching and dropping. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big proponent as of uh, two hours ago of the a nice little hedge and recover. Uh, maybe throw in a blitz every now and then. Just do something to make the – James Harden, Trey Young experience a little bit less predictable and a little bit more uncomfortable, and it doesn't feel like they're they change up coverages really that often, and it feels like just letting these very talented guys get comfortable in, in playmaking and in shooting the basketball has not been a recipe for success uh, for the defense. So, um. I know it's like they probably feel most comfortable in the in switching, which is something they did a lot last season, or dropping with Horford or um, Time Lord. But like, I don't know. It's just like, just maybe freelance it, Al. Maybe Al Horford should just throw in a blitz every now and then, whenever he wants. It would probably screw up the rest of the defense. But like, just show some something different to get the ball out of the primary uh, attacker's hands, and then just forcing the other guys to beat you. Um, there just has to be something other than easily giving up a switch or just letting that guy get into the paint. And so um, I'm, I'm going to be a proponent of the the hedge and recover, but I'm not a brilliant basketball mind. So uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the right strategy. I'm no Jay King. I would not suggest hedging and recovering. Well, what do you do? You, you got no suggestions here. I'm a solutions man. You're just bringing up questions. I just think they, they need like, there needs to be appropriate help. There needs to be urgency in their backline rotations. There needs to be like, just fucking ramp it up, ramp it all the way up. Get into James the ball. James Harden cannot be like posting somebody up, and he takes ten dribbles. Force him to do something. Yeah, no more ten dribble possessions for any player on the Sixers would be ideal. Like, I, if they're dribbling that much, it should be a problem uh, for them. It was not uh, uh, in game one. Yeah, Tobias Harris just does his little dipsy do, looparoo, and just fucking curls around and just goes straight to the rim. Like he dribbled for ten fucking seconds. Somebody do something. Uh, yeah, that's all we've gone for over an hour on this game. I think we've talked uh, a lot about the defense. Um, I don't have any real junk from last night other than Blake Griffin's favorite song growing up was all star by smash mouth. And Hey, uh, now also, Oh, wild story from last night. Um, I don't know if you saw, but apparently someone in one of the luxury boxes was holding up a homemade sign that just said B Rob stinks. <laughs> so, so I was informed of this sign and I didn't, believe I never it. saw it. I never saw it. I Who was told also, it to in, you? um, Nicole Yang of the Boston globe. The, uh, I, Steve Hewitt told that to me. Of the Boston Herald, rival newspapers. That's two sources. It means it was true. And uh, 
<laughs> I see. I have so many questions. Was it a direct attack on B Rob? Was there another B Rob uh, that they were trying to attack? Who makes a homemade sign and just to hold in a luxury box? That's never going to get on television or the Jumbotron. So outrageous to make a homemade sign then. But also, if anyone knows B Rob, he's like one of the nicest individuals I've ever met. And there's just zero way that anyone would make a B Rob stinks sign. And B Rob, it had to be one of his friends, right? No, they uh, someone else like texted him, and he had no idea who it was and what was going on there. So that was just a a wild, wild game one move. I, 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 what kind of asshole would do that? A monster, a true monster. Because I, I thought it had to be one of his friends who was just messing around. That'd be really funny if like. You're B Rob's friend, and you just hold up a sign. B Rob stinks, if and it's anyone, on the jumbotron. Like that—that's a good prank. If anyone um, brings a J King stinks sign to the next Celtics game, I will laugh my ass off. <laughs> I will also laugh my ass off. Somebody please do that. But make, make don't say stinks. Stinks is not a not a harsh no, enough no, language no. for you can for say whatever stinks. I am. You can say stinks if you draw a picture of J. King and then have stink lines coming from it. So it's like, oh, this guy smells bad. But I that guess they would wouldn't fun. have put it on the Jumbotron if it had harsher language. So stinks is probably actually the right the right word choice. They're not going to put a B-Rob stinks on the Jumbotron no matter what. Why would they highlight that just like hatred to one of the beat reporters? Unless it was you. <laughs> <laughs> I, need, I, need, I need the hate. If anyone caught a glimpse or has photo evidence of the B Rob stink sign, please, please send it our way. I just Twitter searched it, but nothing to be found. It's wild stuff. Wild moves for a game one, a very predictable game one in which we all knew the Celtics were going to lose and we're not at all upset because we all knew that they were going to lose to a game, the 76ers, without Joel Embiid. That just, anyone with a brilliant basketball mind should have seen that coming. Um, well, what will happen in game two? Maybe game two, there'll actually be some juice in the building because it's pretty much a must-win game for the Celtics. So we shall see what happens. We'll be joining you guys, uh, or we'll be recording a pod after game two, and that'll be out tomorrow. But thank you for sticking with us here, uh, participating in the live room. Thank you for everyone who asked questions and listened in Uh I'm trying to think of a question where it's going to result in me yelling anything is potable, but I um, am failing to do so. So, Jay, I'm going to leave it to you to say anything is potable. Is the definition of a zigzag potable? Anything is potable! Go fuck yourself. <laughs>